I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. From the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who cannot watch Heart of the Matter on cable or broadcast or dish or any of the other avenues, they can go to hotm.tv and watch Heart of the Matter live, streaming video from anywhere in the world. We also hope you'll take advantage of our archive videos, over 150 of them, hour long, at our website, hotm.tv. Quick announcement, our good friend Russell, he uh, came to me, he's in charge of this event at the Bible Baptist Church on Sunday. They're having a musical event with an inspirational message from Pastor Marshall Warnicke. That's Sunday, March 8th, uh, from 11 a.m. is 1 uh, performance and again at 6 p.m. at the Bible Baptist Church. You can look that up. It's on the corner of 4700 South and Bangor Highway. Free refreshments and fellowship after the message. So check that out. Be well worth uh, your time. I'm sure the message is going to be tremendous. We thank Russell for bringing that to us. How about a moment in church history to kick things off? Tonight, let's jump into the 20th century and report on something that's going to relate to tonight's topic. In 1909, at the General Conference October, Apostle George Albert Smith stopped speaking after about three minutes into his talk. He stood there trembling, sweat began to pour from his brow, and uh, he essentially had a nervous breakdown there at the podium. Uh, two weeks prior, another apostle, Reed Smoot, had mentioned something about Apostle Smith's mental trouble. It must have been a terrible experience. Smith's personal diary detailed his mental derailment. At the age of only 39, he is the first general authority whose debilitating mental illness cannot be passed away or passed off as senility. In my opinion, it's not surprising that this was a Smith. He was hospitalized for 10 weeks at a sanitarium in Salt Lake City. topic, you may find this moment in LDS history very interesting. Hey, do you know how they catch monkeys in the Amazon? Well, one way, from what I hear, is they take a coconut and they put a very small hole in it and they drop some nuts in there and uh, Mr. Monkey comes along and puts his old paw in there and he grabs the nuts and he makes a fist. And when he makes that fist, he can't get his paw out and uh, even when Mr. Monkey sees that he is trapped and his captors are coming to take him away, all he can do is hang on to those, those darn little treats and he won't let them go. So he just sits there screaming bloody murder 
and uh, gripping those, uh, those treats. Mr. Monkey doesn't want to lose his reward, but ironically in the process, he loses his freedom. Why am I telling you this? It's just another reminder, a little nudge for you to abandon ship. Let go of the nuts. Open yourself up and let go. Pull yourself away from that trap and let those brethren know you're not going to hang around to watch the shenanigans any longer. Tell them you want to be free, free to worship Jesus Christ. Ask yourself, do you worship Jesus Christ? As a Latter-day Saint, you don't. I can assure you of that. Free from the tremendous load and burden that comes with being a membership to earn your salvation, your exaltation, your eternal life. Go to utlm.org for more information or our website, bornagainmormon.com, for more information about how to remove your name and send a message loud and clear to the brethren, change your ways and doctrine. Oh, darn it, I forgot. On the inside cover, front cover of the current church magazine, the Ensign, I had one, I think it's in my office, there's a very nice painting, and it's titled The First Relief Society. If you're a member of the church and you subscribe to the Ensign, uh, you can open that cover up, and on the back you'll see this picture, and it's Joseph Smith standing there looking at about 20 women who are then looking at him. Now, Emma Smith was the president of this First Relief Society with Sarah Cleveland and Elizabeth Ann Whitney, her first and second counselors respectively. Eliza R. Snow was his, uh, her secretary. We know from the historical accounts that Joseph was not only taking on extra secret wives during this Nauvoo period when the Relief Society, the Women's Relief Society was established, but that a good portion of those women were present at this artistic rendition of the first meeting of the Relief Society, unbeknownst to Emma. Now, if you have a chance, take a look at that uh, painting. Uh, in the least, I think it should be renamed. Uh, maybe it should be called Joseph Smith checking Nauvoo for new hot babes or something. <laughs> because when you look at the picture, every single one of these women are frankly gorgeous. And Joseph's standing there, and history tells us that, I mean, there could have been five to seven to 15 of, the, of his secret wives there in the audience. But the picture just makes it look like he's instructing them, and they're just so inspired by the spiritual nature of it. And in the very front row, you have Emma sitting there, who in the painting looks so into it as well, not realizing probably that many of those women around her were secretly wedded to her husband. I hope this type of thing somehow disturbs you because it's a visual representation of absolute uh, deception. And I hope you will take a minute and stare at the image and then go to utlm.org and look up Nauvoo, the wives of Joseph Smith, polygamy. Do some research and see what you think about it and if it opens up your mind to other things. And with that, we have a bit of a long message, but I think it's a good one. Let's have a prayer. Lord, we need you in our lives. I need you and tonight on the show, so I pray you will uh, let me say the things you want me to say and, uh, and that you will open our eyes and ears and hearts to your truth. We pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the most frequently asked questions we received in the ministry are the what's, why's, and how's of the man named Joseph Smith. What drove him, people will often wonder. Why and how did he write that Book of Mormon, they ask. 
Uh, how did he do what he did? What prompted him? I've spent no small amount of time uh, reading everything I can relative to the person Joseph Smith Jr. I too have wanted to understand the whys, what's, and how's of who Jan Ships, non-Mormon uh, LDS scholar, calls the uh, prophet puzzle. It is a puzzle if you take all the things about him in hand. I am of the opinion that tonight we are going to present a very important piece to this mysterious portrait of Joseph Smith Jr. You see, tonight we have an opportunity to witness a side of him that is rarely seen or examined, a side that is revealed through the life of his last-born son, David Hiram Smith. Were all the other children of Emma and Joseph, Julia, Joseph III, Alex, and Frederick, were to some extent personally influenced by their father's presence, David offers a unique perspective of Joseph Smith because he never knew him personally, but only reflects aspects of him genetically. I mentioned last week that in my opinion, each of Joseph and Emma's sons seemed to embody some aspect of Joseph Smith Jr., while at the same time, they all seem to somehow have suffered for the sins of their father. In my opinion, no one exemplifies this mirroring and suffering better or more than David Hiram Smith. He was born November 17, 1844, to the widow Emma in Nauvoo, five months after his father was killed. Like the home his father was born into, sorrow and financial ruin were very much part of the emotional climate of David's young life. Prior to his death, Joseph Smith Jr. actually bestowed upon David his first given name and a heavenly promise. Joseph Smith said to Brigham Young, quote, I shall have a son born to me, and his name shall be David, and on him in some future time will rest the responsibility that now rests on me. In fact, for quite some time, Brigham Young, even out here in Utah, operated under the notion that David would actually lead the Utah church, stating that the revelations of the church would rest upon, quote, the posterity of Joseph Smith, the prophet. Joseph Smith also said that David of the Old Testament, you know, the David who the LDS say was not forgiven for his sins. Joseph Smith said he, quote, never did obtain the spirit and power of Elijah and the fullness of the priesthood, and that these powers and kingdoms would have been taken from him in these last days and given to another whose name should also be David, and what he meant was his son, his unborn son. In other words, and as with everything else in Joseph's Mormonism, David was part of a restoration of all things, becoming a second and more successful King David uh, of the restored church here in the 1800s. Like his father before him, great expectations were heaped upon this unborn child, David Hiram Smith. Prior to leaving for Carthage jail where he was killed, Joseph jumped from his horse and re-entered the mansion house at Nauvoo where Emma sat inside pregnant with the child. He blessed his wife, saying, quote, Thou shalt bear a child, and though he should be incarcerated in solid rock, yet he shall come out and make his mark upon the world. Call his name David. And he walked out and left and was killed the next day. Now remember, Joseph Smith Jr. had at one time or another indicated that both 
uh, his oldest son and his youngest, David, would lead the church. He also told seven other men that they would, in fact, lead the church when he was gone. But what made David really special was the fact that his father had begun to teach in Nauvoo that if a couple was sealed in his temple rites that he constructed, that the first child born to them after that sealing would have a special blessing placed upon them by God that the other child's, irrespective of their line in the family, would have. On uh, September uh, of 1843, Emma was sealed to Joseph Smith as his eternal wife, as his queen, and as his princess. And David was born thereafter, and so therefore it made him this very special heir. Again, using some more strangely prophetic language, Joseph prophesied that Emma was going to bear, quote, a son of promise. Then he added again, and if a son of promise was walled in a granite rock, when the power of the Holy Ghost fell upon him, he would break his way out. David was quite a sensitive soul, an artistic naturalist type of person, a lover of beautiful things. He composed and sang music. He wrote and had poetry published. He was like his father, a man of words. Quite early on, he was a religious moralist, and he was prone to writing condemnatory editorials, which were published in the RLDS newspaper under a pseudonym called, named Thomas Faithful. Once Thomas Faithful reminded the readers, in fact, that, quote, the faithful should have only one wife. It's very interesting that David, like his father Joseph, found comfort and satisfaction in writing under a variety of pseudonyms. Where Joseph wrote as Nephi and Alma and even the Lord, David was not so bold and instead expressed himself under the names of Oriel, Abel, Ariel, and Mr. Thomas Faithful. When David was in his early 20s, he began to deal with what could only be described as some vague health issues, all of which were pretty much attributed to his somewhat frail physical stature. Nevertheless, as LDS author Valine Tibbetts Avery comments in her book, From Mission to Madness, David, quote, never doubted his place in the special, often mysterious task to which God, even before his birth, had called him to. David Smith's poetry was riddled with religious implication and poignant spiritual overtones. This preoccupation for knowing, describing, and contemplating God and his creation became an overriding theme throughout his life. If you read his poetry, you can readily see firsthand his worldview that kind of balanced precariously between genius and madness, between revelation and vivid imagination, between Christian lucidity and dogmatic confusion. But unlike his older brothers, David was interested in a subject that would ultimately alter his life forever, the truth. David wanted the truth about Mormonism, about his father, and especially about polygamy. No matter what the cost, David wanted, sought, and eventually discovered the truth. In 1869, he visited Utah for the first time on a mission with his brother Alex. Last week, we reported the exchange that he had had with Brigham Young. Um, after some time in Utah, David spoke about the unjust attacks and debates they experienced and what he believed were distortions and lies that the Utah Saints uh, uh, placed upon them. 
He would write eloquently against these injustices. His assessment of Brighamite Mormonism was insightful, biting, and very applicable to what Mormonism is even more fully embodied uh, by today. He called the doctrine of blood atonement, which is denied today, but he called the doctrine the relic of barbarism, while his brother Alex said that Brigham was a murderer. They were, that shows you the difference between the two. And he had much to say about the word intolerance that he found while being here in Utah and the bureaucracy of the church. He wrote about the words that he, he wrote, he wrote extensively about words that he grew to hate and experience here in Utah, like policy and authority, and he, which he claimed, quote, corrupted the hearts of the Utah saints. After about five months here, under a lot of strain, David and Alex moved on to California, where David's lifelong battle with mil, uh, mental illness began to take form. There he found himself fighting off what he wrote and described as the blues. He continued writing poetry, but feelings of loss and alienation troubled his serenity. By January and February of 1870, his illness, which at the time was chalked up to be mere homesickness, was in retrospect seen by his family as the harbinger of his future mental incapacities. The family believed that David's psychological issues were in part, large part, a result of his exposure to the abuse of Utah Mormonism. Years later, David's niece wrote, quote, under the strain of David's Utah mission, his health was broken, end quote. In March of 1870, David and Alex returned to Illinois from California. While Alex resigned himself to accepting that his father would never have practiced polygamy, David continued to privately search for the truth. In what may have been an act to protect his sanity, David built a wall of printed and spoken words denouncing plural marriage while at the same time secretly investigating his father's first hand, uh, hand, uh, his father's hand in the practice. He married one Clara Hartshorn on May 15th of 1870, but wrote to his brother that in spite of the excitement of the wedding, he still felt himself sinking again. Stress and strain seemed to affect David greatly with incidents leaving him in his own words, quote, all but wild with nervous intensity, end quote. He grew increasingly intolerant of nomadic river people who visited Nauvoo, and over time he got quite bitter about his family's opposition to what he viewed as his special calling from God, uh, which was to preach without any encumbrance upon his living. His father, Joseph, was very much of the same ilk. Being a dreaming man of words, David had no taste for physical labor and pushed for another call to Utah from his prophet brother. Where his father showed a disrespect for women through his behaviors, David similarly uh, expressed a disdain for women in 1871 when he wrote, quote, Confiscate the women. They are a whining, degenerate set. Let them de they don't let them depend on you too much. They are a shirkful set. In 1872, David got his wish and was called back to Utah. By July of the same year, his writings were consumed with attempting to solve the mysterious complexities of plural marriage. So while on his mission, which kept him very busy, he spent a lot of private time seeking and searching for people who might have known his father. He had great suspicions. It was during this trip that David, in an almost karma-like turn of events, and I don't believe in karma, met up with one Amasa Mason Lyman. 
Amasa Mason Lyman was called to be an apostle by David's father, Joseph Smith Jr., uh, some 33 years earlier. It was this meeting and his subsequent friendship with Amasa Lyman that both opened David's heart to the truth and exposed his soul to a dark spirit that would consume his mind once and for all. It appears that Amasa informed David about his father's multiple wives, as Amasa, being one of Joseph's apostles, took one of Joseph's plural wives, Eliza Partridge, as his own when Joseph was killed. This sent David on a search to interview other women firsthand, who he was told were also secretly married to his father. Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner told David face to face that she knew of six of Joseph's wives and of three of his children, who she asserted, quote, are not known as his children as they go by other names. These things, she said in all sincerity, I can testify as the living truth and have told them to the Josephites or the, FL, or the RLDS where you come from. Just six months earlier, David had emphatically written to his family stating how the Utah Saints had brought great shame upon themselves by practicing polygamy and how he, quote, thanked God that the Smith family was spared from such disgrace. Now David, like all people who have ever been lied to about Mormon history, who have believed in the man who was a deceiver, who had built an entire life on the premise that what he said was true, was facing the facts of his faith, of his family, and of his father. The results were not pretty. Enter a barrage of disbelief, shock, remorse, guilt, depression for David. At first, he tried to pawn the responsibility for his father's actions off on the women themselves. He wrote, quote, It seems natural for women to love good men, and they almost always sin in that line, if my experience is anything. Ultimately, though, David, seeking to express his findings to someone outside the immediate family, confided in a friend and stated plainly, quote, I believe something is wrong. Like most true believers in Joseph Smith's Mormonism, when they are able to admit something is wrong, avenues of both terror and delight seem to open up before them. David, having discovered for himself the true history of his father, faith, and family, chose a path that our ministry is dedicated to help anyone and everyone avoid. But there was no one around to catch David when he fell. In August of 1872, David wrote to a friend in Salt Lake City. He said, quote, Spiritualism and free loveism, liberally in every sense of the word, marks the age here, and it is hard to confine a man's belief in any proper direction. Get them out of the narrow track of brighamism, and they will fly away to all the other extremes. Enter Amasa Mason Lyman, called the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by none other than David's father, Joseph. He had joined the church in 1832, served 15 missions, was a counselor to Joseph Smith and an apostle to Brigham Young. But the seeds of magic and his communications with the dead, which were readily manifest in practice throughout Joseph's establishment of the church, never stopped growing in the heart of Amasa Lyman. And in an act of twisted fate, it was this apostle who introduced the fruit of a demonic world to Joseph's own son of promise in the form of seances. 
So in light of the fact of his father, faith, and family, David turned to the forbidden practice of contacting the dead with one of his father's original apostles. Interestingly enough, and as a matter of record, as David partook in Amasa's rituals with the dead, his ability to speak and teach became even more brilliant and compelling. Privately, David drifted further and further from RLDS orthodoxy, while publicly he was being acclaimed here in Utah as a great gifted orator. David tried to introduce many aspects of uh, Amasa's spiritualism into the RLDS faith, which his brother categorically rejected. In time, David's theology became more and more radical. He spoke on matter the absurdity of, quote, faith being the only means of salvation, while adapting a sort of Emerson Jeffersonian metaphysic. He offered a poem appropriately uh, titled, in the end, quote, I am not as I was. Eight months later, while still in Utah, he knew something was really wrong with him. In December of 1872, the Utah Press announced that David had fallen ill with a catch-all term, brain fever. He would never be the same again. In 1874, David wrote to his brother, like his father before him, he would find himself speaking and believe it was revelation from God or from some source outside of himself. He wrote to his brother and said, my talk is astounding to myself as the, and I marvel whence it cometh. As sure as I live, it proceeds not from my heart, nor is it David who speaks thus. Diaries from friends wrote more plainly. The man who married David to Clara wrote in July of 1874, he is insane. Like his father, David also became convinced that his wife was trying to poison him too. The people around him in the RLDS were convinced he was under a demonic influence and personal journals detailed scenes that would rival the exorcist. Like his father, David became physically abusive when people crossed him, striking at his own brother, Alex. Like his father, David fancied himself as an important leader of industry. Believing he was the president of a railroad, he would send upwards of 15 incomprehensible wires a day to fictitious managers and staff members. On July 19th of 1877, Joseph III took his child of promise brother David to the Illinois State Hospital for the Insane and with much heartache committed him there for life. It is more than intriguing that the Illinois State Hospital was a giant structure built of large solid rock. Let's reread Joseph's blessing to Emma prior to the death when he said, Thou shalt bear a child, and though he shall be incarcerated in solid rock, he shall yet come out and make his mark upon the world. Joseph did at times seem to be able to conjure up evidences and facts from places that we don't know where. But as with most of his utterances and promises, his blessing was, fell short in being true because David never came out of that rock of com, uh, incarceration and he never made his mark upon the world. On August 29th, 1904, David Hiram Smith died at age 59, an insane man, broken by the spirits, introduced to his already frail mind by a man his father ordained as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And while I don't believe in karma, I certainly believe in the sins of the father being passed down to the children. We're going to open up the phones, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. When we get back for the break, have your calls. Please 
be a first time caller, be LDS, be nice, be clear, be to the point, stay with us, be back in 15 seconds. Hey, we're back, and we're ready for your phone calls. We've got Brock in Spokane, Washington, first-time caller on line one. Brock, you're on, you are on Heart of the Matter. How are you doing today, Sean? And can't hear you. Oh, you can't hear me? I can, can hear you now. now. You're on the air, my friend. Yep, I, I'm on a home phone, so you should be able to hear me. Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, great. <laughs> well, I have some good news, and then I have a question. Oh. Good. Good news is I am I was a fifth generation Jehovah's Witness and now I'm born again. Praise God. That's because awesome. That is fantastic. Yeah, I, I watched it a year ago to try and prove my coworkers and my girlfriend wrong because they're Mormon. And I ended up figuring out that this kind of applies to me too. <laughs> no kidding. We're reaching the Jehovah's Witnesses too. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, just not all the points, but you know, just little little things here and there. Just you know, a lot of a lot of it relates to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, also. So. Yeah, well, praise God, that's the Lord working, right? Yeah, and and on the same note too, it comes to my question. Uh, I, I have attended a, a Calvary Church here in Spokane, uh -huh. and I still have problems with holidays too, because I, I don't know how much insight you can give, but you know, with with Christmas and Halloween, because of their origins. Yeah. I still have a problem celebrating as a Christian. What, what are your feelings on that? Well, I have personal feelings toward it, and then I know, uh, but I have great liberty for, for everybody regarding ho holidays. For instance, where I came from in my uh, 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 Christian teaching at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, uh, Chuck Smith, you know, they, they couldn't stand Halloween. And, and uh, so a lot of Christians just don't even touch Halloween, so I, I appreciate and respect that. I'm not very big. Our family is personally just not very big on any of the holidays. We try to celebrate Christ and Christmas all the time. And that sounds trite, but we really do. So to me, it's a thing of liberty. I just don't make it a mountain or a molehill. I don't make it a, a thing to die on. I give people the liberty to uh, celebrate festivals and, and things. But, uh, you know, it's going to be maybe something tough for you because you were taught so strenuously as a Jehovah's Witness about that. And there could be some good things from those teachings, you know? Right, yeah. So uh, I wouldn't worry about it too much. You know, let the Lord guide take it to Him. And if you're bothered by it and you see other Christians, you know, celebrating these holidays, don't let it bother you or shake your faith. And if you in time loosen up with that, then fine. And if you don't, fine too. Right. I kind of took up the idea about how in the first century Christians, you know, they had their Jewish counterparts too who would still partake of the same festivals. Sure. Try not to get offended by it. Yeah, I, same, I same parallel. Yeah, I was just concerned about how you know the pagan backgrounds of the holidays and yeah, turning not, it into. Yes, yeah, it, it, they do have pagan uh, backgrounds, but then again, you could say, well, they've taken something pagan, we've pointed it toward Christ, and and rejoice in that sense. By the way, Brock, I got to tell you, I have an actual photograph at my house in a file of William Taz Russell. Is that right? Right. Yeah, Charles. Taz Charles Russell. Taz Russell. Celebrating Christmas at a Christmas party. 
Yeah, I, my dad has an old watchtower of him cutting a cutting a turkey on Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh yeah, you see. So maybe that maybe that will give you some some ease on on Turkey Day and stuff like well, that. Well, the light gets brighter. That's what that's what my dad told me. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> hey, great. Thanks for calling it, and please share the show with your your friends and family out in Spokane. All right, great. Thank you. All right, Brock. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, we're going to John in Ogden, first time caller. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, John. Uh, yes, John. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Say, <clears throat> so I wanted to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe two questions, if that's okay. Uh, first of all, I would like to know why do you, what do you think about this uh, vision that Joseph Smith had in the grove, where he saw God, Jesus Christ, and I think it was John the Baptist. Yeah, no, John the Baptist wasn't in the in the first vision. Okay, in a nutshell, uh, John, let me ask answer your first question. This is what I think. I think that Joseph Smith had some kind of experience. I don't think it was the experience that has ultimately become what the LDS call the first vision, where uh, I uh, the sun was as bright at noonday, and I saw the Father standing there with the sun beside him, brighter than noonday, and all that is, I believe, is fabrication. I believe he had an experience. Next week, I'm going to give you my rationalization of what caused that experience. But if you look at the history of the first vision, you will see all the different uh, approaches to it morphed and changed over time to fit Joseph Smith's newly constructed theology. So I believe it's a deception. I believe it's fabricated. I believe it's rewritten. But I do believe he himself believes he personally experienced something. Okay. Your, your next question? Yeah, the next one is, you know, the Mormon church, I mean, they are, as far as I know, they're one of the richest churches in the world. Yeah. You, you know, and uh, I, I grew up in the, as a Catholic, and... Uh, That's I the richest I, church in the world. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> but uh, when I was 25 years old, I was in the Army, and I met the missionaries, okay? Uh-huh. You know, and they gave me their speech and all that. And they told me, okay, pray about it, you know, and, uh, you know, you'll know. If it, read the Book of Mormon, pray about it, and you'll know if it is true or not. Yeah. Okay, well, I thought it was true, but they also told me, okay, you only have one chance. If you don't join down, join down. Don't, don't join now. You will go to hell forever. Wow. Those are some hardcore missionaries. They've changed yeah. their tactics now. So what did you do? Yeah. Did you join? Yeah, I did. I've been a member since I was uh, 25. And how are you doing now? Now, for the past uh, about nine months, I've been going to a Pentecostal church. Uh-huh. And how's uh, that working out? I, I like it a lot better. Wow. Uh, a, a friend of mine, she invited me to go to church with her. Uh-huh. You know, I knew it was some kind of Protestant church, but I had no idea what it was. Uh-huh. So I went with her, and it was really a shock. You know, I was not used to this type, hey. type of thing, but I, I, I'm going to that church now, and I like it a lot better. The people are a lot more friendly, and, uh, you, you know... John? Yes. Can I ask you if you could, just in a statement, what is the, the biggest difference you see between going to a place that, 
like the Pentecostal church you're going to and sitting in an LDS sacrament meeting, a single statement, what is the biggest difference you see? Uh, friendliness. Friendliness. And uh, they, 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 they stick to the Bible. And they stick to the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, you know, um, anything else, John? No, that's it. Okay, well, listen, I, we're really excited about your uh, going to that Pentecostal church. Have you been born again? You, have you offered your life to the Lord? Well, I've, I've always believed in God. I'm the only family and the only member of my family who believes in God. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 just, I, I just can't answer your question. I just don't know. Well, why don't, we, why don't you do it right here? Well, I, I'm so, so confused about religion. Yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe, it, 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 let me tell you something, John. Religion's a confusing thing. But the way that you can get your mind cleared is not necessarily listening to me, uh, but by going to the Lord and asking Him to give you new eyes and new ears and a new heart to understand. And, and, and if you go and you, you confess that you're a sinner and you tell Him that you need Him to become Lord and King and Savior of your life, that he will do that. Now, his timing is going to be his. He might do it immediately. He might do it next week. I don't know. But if you, in faith, believe in Jesus as your Savior, and you know that you have sinned, and you want him to become Lord of your life, the best thing to have that clarity is to simply relinquish what you have made of your life and give it over to God. So I'm challenging you to do that. I'll do it with you right here on the air, or you can do it in the privacy of your home, or go to your pastor at the Pentecostal Church, Whatever you want to do, um, John, but do it. Well, I think I'll, I'll, go to, I'll, go to, I'll go to my pastor because I'm having a very hard time with all of this. Well, you go to him and you tell him about that you want to be born again, John. You say, I want to be born again, and, just, and then he'll help you, and then you trust in the Lord to lead you to that point. And then call us back and tell us how it goes. Okay, thank you very much. God bless you, my friend. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to Dave in Salt Lake City. Dave, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Just two quick questions. Yes. Uh, the first one is, how do I convince my daughter not to get married in the temple? And the second question is, how do I... What is the rules of owing taxes? Her husband owes $200,000 in back taxes. Is there something... Does that... Uh, no, no to get married in the temple. Um, is well. It, first of all, let me ask you: Is your daughter? She's LDS now, or she, and how old is she? She's twenty-five, and they got married, and they're getting re ready to go through the temple. Okay, she's twenty-five. She's a member of the church then. She is now. Yeah, she is now. She married him when she wasn't a member, and he was. Uh, they both were members, but not. Active? Staunch members. I see. Well, you know, I, I would, you know, you can talk to her. Uh, it's a tough one because now you've got the marriage and you've got them going. I don't know what the relationship has been in a three-minute uh, phone call here on TV with you and your daughter relative to your Christianity and the example and you're sharing with her in love or has it been argumentative. All those things will play into it, but long-term, I believe the best effect you're going to have on your daughter is to love her as Jesus loves you and to share him uh, as often and uh, as you can and as the Spirit so leads 
And, um, you know, if the time uh, arrives where the, where the Holy Spirit makes it uh, profitable for you to say, you know, I really don't think you should do that temple, you might consider, you know, waiting for that moment. But finally, I think I would also say to your daughter, honey, I love you. I know you've decided to go get married in the LDS temple, and I just want you to, when you're in there, I just want you to look around and say to yourself, how much of this really plays into who Jesus is to me? Just at, have her ask herself when she's in there, where is Jesus in all this? Okay. And uh, that might, you know, God willing, he's going to work it, might help at least uh, do something, plant seeds for the future. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. Now, were they allowed to go through the temple knowing they owe that much in back taxes? You know, it's going to be, it would all be dependent upon their relationship with the bishop, the stake president, if the bishop and stake president are aware of the tax thing, if the IRS is aware and they're working with it, or if they're eluding it, they're just not paying it. I don't know. But, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure I would, I would go and, and, and rat them out. Uh, to, but may, that, that's just my advice. I don't know. I, yeah, I, but it's just an, it's an honesty question, kind of. You know what oh, I yeah. mean? That's not being honest if you owe like, money like that, right? Yeah, but Dave, you know, if you really think about it, every one of those questions, they're lying somewhere in there. I mean, right. if, you, if we listed the, the, the laundry list of questions they ask them, they're lying in probably three-quarters of them. You have to if you're honest. That's true. That's yeah. true. Hey, well, listen, I appreciate the information. Okay, my, my, my friend. God bless you. Take care. Hey, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to Cameron in Draper. That was a strange one. Cameron, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, thanks for having me on, Sean. You're welcome. Hey, so my buddy said this, and it was very interesting. I just wanted to, just, uh, to get your perspective on it. Yeah. Um, Mormons teach that a man can become a god, and God was once a man who had sinned and gone through trials and, and everything, but Jesus came, and he never once sinned. And I just wanted to see, does that not make Jesus more, you know, more perfect than God or, or higher than God in a way? Wow. Never thought of that one. Yeah, that father-son relationship and the way the LDS view it's really a strange one, and that's a that's a point I haven't thought about. I, uh, yeah, yeah, great point, great All point. Right. LDS, do you have an answer to that? God the Father was once a man, but they might say that maybe God the Father's lineage of Godhood, he was once a Jesus man, who didn't sin, who became God the Father, and then he had his only begotten Son, who was Jesus who will become a God the Father, who will then have an only begotten Son. So they might, the answer I would give if I was a Mormon missionary, was that God the Father was a Jesus in his earthly walk. Mm, okay. Yeah. I don't right. believe it, but I mean, that, <laughs> that's the answer I would give. Okay, okay. Uh, well, all right, Cameron, I, good question. All right, hey, thanks. Thanks, hey, talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to Todd in Taylorsville. Todd, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi there. Hey, how's it going, Sean? Hey, going well, Todd. How are you? Good. Hey, I wanted to just give you one encouraging thing. You gave an altar call, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe a month or so ago, uh -huh. and I knew the prayer was led immediately by the Holy Ghost, and uh, after you gave the call, I went out and started talking to the Lord and looked up in the sky, and uh, he gave a shooting star just to uh, 
confirm that uh, there were people saved. I knew it immediately. It was so cool. I knew it was absolutely related to that. Oh, well, awesome. I know. It was pretty cool. That, is that what you wanted to share? Uh, I wanted to share that, and then also I wanted to ask a question. I am, you know, I come from a Mormon background, and uh, I got, I'm born again four and a half years ago or so. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, um, that's when I was assured of my salvation you anyway, I knew without any doubt I was saved right and uh, but uh, that's about the time well anyway my little brother I live with my mom and I moved back from Oregon here and I live with my mom and they're they're both my brother and my my mother are LDS and he's gonna go on a mission and I don't know exactly how to handle the situation because uh, you know they're gonna want me to go to the uh, probably want me to go to the the meeting where, you know, they send him off or whatever, and uh -huh. uh, so I just have not known how to handle the situation. Wondered if you might pray for me and you know, for wisdom from the Lord how to handle it. We'll pray for you, Todd. We'll put you on the prayer list uh, for the ministry. But I, I just suggest that you go. Okay. And I would suggest that when you have an opportunity that you share Jesus and you take that missionary aside and you do the same thing that we just talked to that other caller about. You say, now listen. Uh, Joe, my little nephew or whatever, when you get out there and you go through the MTC and you're talking to your missionaries, I want you to think when you're given those planned discussions, how much of this is based on just pure love, faith in Christ Jesus? Amen. Just, just plant that seed and, and that's what you're doing, you know, mostly just for the viewing audience. We are planting seeds. It's yeah. very rare, you know, you're going to hit the home run when you first meet somebody. Oh, I'll leave Mormonism today. You know, exactly. we're planting seeds so that they will germinate and later in their life. And you may cause that missionary. We had an email from a missionary. He started watching the YouTube videos. Seeds were planted on his mission, walked, came home. He's back in Utah right now. Just sent me uh, an email, said he's born again and he's with Christ. Awesome. So, so cool. you plant seeds and you let the yeah. Lord do all the work. All and, right. uh, and that's how it works. Right on. All right, man. Well, Thanks, God bless you. You are an answer to my prayers. You know, I cried out to the Lord when I first got saved majorly because I was in Oregon. You know, anyway, thank you so very much. Thank you, Todd. God bless God you. God bless you. Bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Bob in Salt Lake City. First-time caller. Bob, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, yes, uh, Sean. I just uh, wanted to uh, call and tell you I think you're an amazing young man, and I am so impressed with your skill of both your knowledge and your ability to uh, express the love you have of the Lord, and I'm, I'm just truly impressed. Oh, you're very nice, Bob. I had a question for you, which regards uh, the, the book, No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody, if you're familiar with that. I am. My question is, uh, how would you rate that book? Uh, I'm, I was so impressed by it, and uh, my wife, who was a Mormon, and has now uh, become a Christian in a true sense of that, and we're both newborn uh, believers, and it's been such a difference in our life, uh, but I wanted to ask you, uh, on a scale of how you would rank that book, considering the author, Fawn Brody, and her background, how do you, uh, would you suggest that would be a good book for uh, someone who is in questioning whether their faith as a Mormon would be solid or would be truthful? I was wondering how you would evaluate that. Now, hang up and listen to your reply. Okay, Bob, thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, I would uh, rate Fawn Brody's book, No Man Knows My History, uh, up toward, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being great, uh, 10. The only thing that uh, I would say is 
difficult about it at all is she does, from her own intelligence, uh, make assumptions about what motivated Joseph to do different things. But you know, she's an author. Uh, she's a fantastic, uh, learned, educated ex-LDS woman, now deceased, who uh, won a, uh, I forget what the award was, Robert, who, uh, not for No Man Knows My History, but for a biography on Jefferson. Uh, she's an excellent biographer, and her research skills in No Man Knows My History are just exceptional. It should be a must-read, probably the first must-read on someone who wants to investigate Mormonism, their history, and Joseph Smith is a man. So, Bob, I completely concur with No Man Knows My History. Let me throw out a few other books out there for your consideration while we're on this subject. Grant Palmer, uh, LDS seminary teacher, Insider's View of Mormon Origins. Highly recommend that because that gives you chronology timelines with priesthood restoration, First Vision stuff, Book of Mormon stuff. Amazing, all researched, all documented. The LDS Church hierarchy excommunicated Grant Palmer for writing the book. Uh, and he's taken a lot of heat for it, but it is a phenomenal book as well. I think that uh, M.T. Lamb's The Golden Bible, an old book you can get at Utah Lighthouse Ministries, is an excellent book. I think that there's a book that my friend Reed just turned me on to, and I'm going to talk extensively about it next week, which is called The Sword of Laban, um, Joseph Smith's Mind. Joseph Smith and the Disassociated Mind. Dissociated Mind uh, is an excellent book as well. Of course, um, uh, uh, Four Windows. Abanas' book. Anyone? Sean? Uh, I think I consider uh, In Sacred Loneliness by Todd Compton to be a vindication of Von Brody's book. Uh, I don't think you can hear that from Robert, but he considers uh, Todd Compton's In Sacred Loneliness a vindication of Von Brody's book. By the way, Todd Compton's book is good, but it is big, and most people don't finish it. And it just goes through each of Joseph Smith's wives, tells them what happened with them and what uh, with Joseph, and then what happened to them after. It's heartbreaking. It's an excellent book. So uh, we'll go from there, and uh, we'll pick up the rest of them later. Let's go to Don in Bountiful, first-time caller. Don, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, is this Sean? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, <clears throat> I had a question for you. Yes, Don. I want to know what you're going to do when you die and go to heaven, and you meet the Lord Jesus Christ, and you find out that he's a Mormon. <laughs> hey, are you being... Uh... No, I'm being straight with you. I, I watch your show every week. You give a, a real different perspective. Okay, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is a Mormon? I know he is. Oh, wow, this is fantastic. Okay, first of all, Jesus Christ, he's, he's adopted a nickname? It's a, it's a nickname. Jesus so, Christ is a nickname? No, he's Jehovah's a... a nickname? Mormon's a nickname. That was a nickname given by people who didn't like the Mormons. So no, uh, the LDS Church let's uses it... Uh, let's say he's LDS. Okay, so you're saying he's a Latter-day Saint. Yeah. Jesus Christ was born at, in, in uh, 4 uh, B.C. is a Latter-day Saint now. Yes. Okay. Uh, I have to tell you, Don, and I say this respectfully, you're insane. No, you are. I'm not insane, Don. You, you put out so much disinformation and wrong facts that uh, we only hear half the story. 
Okay, yeah, wrong. How do you give a wrong you know, fact? Here's the other story. <laughs> Don, I, 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 I want to invite you right now to give me one wrong fact or piece of disinformation that I've given. One. The church is wrong. How come it's so big? How come it keeps growing? <laughs> that's, that's not a fact. Let's state you just... It, Wait, Don, let's keep it friendly. You just gave a, a, a very accusatory comment to me that I give out tons of misinformation and wrong facts. I want you no. to give me one. Uh, you, you've been giving out a lot of misinformation about Joseph Smith, the prophet. Some of the things I say about Joseph Smith are my feelings, and I usually try to say that, but if it is about his, what he did, chronology, dates, marriages, secret things, magic practices, all of it fact. All of it, Don. So I, I know it doesn't feel good to hear it from me, and I know that it goes against what you have been taught to believe, Don, but what I want to ask you, instead of going to this ethereal, what am I going to do when I meet the LDS Jesus, yep. why don't we talk about, why don't you answer some of the facts for me? Go ahead. I can answer anything you ask me. Okay, why did Joseph Smith marry teenage girls and hide them from his wife? Maybe the Lord told him to. <laughs> That's what he said. Many, many, That's what he said. Many, many you don't fall far from the tree, do you, Don? I'm real close to the tree, pal. You I know, know you are. Close. I know, you I know, know you're close, close to the tree, my friend. Listen, hey, Don. Let me ask you this, since you're, it seems like you're a very faithful Latter-day Saint. Very much so. Okay, will you tell our audience what it takes to go and live with a Heavenly Father? You have to live His commandments. Okay, and, and what are those commandments, Don? The Ten Commandments. You know, Moses wrote them. You ought to know them. Okay, the Ten Commandments. Right. Any, anything else? Uh, you've got to be a good, honest person. You need to pay your tithing. Uh, you need to do right by your fellow man. You do right. Okay. Anything else within the oh, confines probably, of the restored gospel? More. I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. What'd you say? There's probably a hundred more things you, you need to do, but uh, it makes you a better person. Make you a better person. Mm -hmm. And what if what if you, you know, do those hundred other things? Can you give me the big ones at least? What are the biggest ones? <clears throat> well, you know, if the Lord was going to have a church, what would He name it? Uh, I would name it Christianity. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because that's his church. Well, you know, it wasn't originally named that. Uh, you know that, don't you? Well, I've always called it that. Yeah. Well, I guess that's all that's important, huh? Where have you ever heard this comment, Sean? The Lord will not be mocked. Where did you hear that? Uh, I agree with that. I try very hard not to mock the Lord. When you talk about his people, you talk about his prophets, uh, you're mocking him. Okay, what prophet? Joseph Smith, uh, Spencer Kimball. Uh, Those men are liars. Well, you might think so. Those men are liars. They're, decept they're deceiving. You ever met one face-to-face? -face? I don't need to meet like him. I'd meet... like you to tell Thomas S. Monson to his face that he's a liar. I would love to tell Thomas S. Monson yeah. to his face he's a liar. Yeah. I'll tell Thomas Monson right now. Far. Thomas. I don't think you'd go very far. Because All why? All you got to do is look that man in the eye and you know who he is. <laughs> This is so good. Well, sure. Listen, Dave. You're finally getting the other side of the story. What? What is? I might get the other side of the story. Now you're getting the other side of the story. The what? other half. 
that the other people, your other people are not hearing. I, you're right. You're giving a side of the story the other people don't usually hear. That's right. It's fantastic. Keep giving us more. So when I look at Thomas S. Monson in the eyes, I am going to you melt will because... You he is the prophet of God. I'll know. Nice voice intonation there, too. Yep, you will know. Okay. And I, by the way, I have met him. And You've I met... know the truth. And hey. all the prophets and all the apostles are true. Don? Yep. Don, I, can't, I can't argue with a belief, okay? Right. I, can't, I can't argue that you believe that there's a Santa Claus. There's nothing I can say or do in that. I can say there's not, but you could say, have you explored the entire North Pole or South Pole? And I would say no, and you'd say, well, see, there is, I know. So we can argue this, but I have a manual in front of me, and I go by that manual, and there is so much within your faith that this manual is an absolute contradiction to. Now, how do you justify that? You have your way of reading it, and I have mine. <laughs> so who's right, Don? Uh, it's what the Lord tells you is right. Isn't that really, isn't that really arbitrary and very relative? No, because if I ask the Lord something and He answers me, that's right. Okay, so what if the how Lord... How do you get your information? I Same get it way. from His Word. Same way. I get it from his word. That's where I get it. No, you just said if the Lord tells you something. If I ask him a question, if I read something in the Bible, I read something in the Book of Mormon, and no, no, I no, ask no. the Lord if it's true, and he answers me, then it's true. Okay, now the Lafferty brothers. Yeah, what about them? They were, they were told that they needed to kill their sister-in-law because she wouldn't go along with polygamy, well, and the Lord told them to do that, and no, kill the baby, no, too. No, Satan told them to do okay, that. Okay, how do you tell the difference, then, Don? Hand out, and if he shakes your hand, uh, you know you got the wrong guy. I couldn't pay for this. I could not pay for anything better. Don, we're out of time. All Please right. call again. God bless you. And uh, we've got 15 seconds left. Listen, next week you got to tune in. This is not uh, definitely this. What I'm going to talk about are not facts, but it certainly adds a piece to the uh, the profit puzzle of Joseph Smith. So we'll see you here on Heart of the Matter. God bless you. <laughs>